If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Highway to Health Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Quinby, provides guidance, quality resources, and inspiration for anyone seeking wellness in mind, body, and spirit. There's an episode that you should check out called The Value of Our Emotions, where Jeremy helps listeners understand the role emotions serve and what we can learn about our present state by staying attuned to them. Check out Highway to Health Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Helpful Hints. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Bradner, and to say I'm excited about today's guest is an understatement. We are welcoming Dr. Adam Duke, who is an excision surgeon. As you know, I've been preaching to you all about endometriosis. It is Endometriosis Awareness Month. I'm a huge advocate for excision surgery. So we're going to waste no time today. We're going to dive right in with Dr. Duke. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's just dive in. What is endometriosis? Can you explain what it is? Absolutely. So endometriosis is the, the simplest definition of it is that it is tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus or the endometrium. There is a critical distinction in that. And the definition is actually becomes very, very important because endometriosis is not just rogue endometrial tissue. There are uh, critical genetic uh, uh, differences between the way that the tissues behave, um, but it's tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus and it, it, it implants in places outside of the uterus and it really can be anywhere, diaphragm, uh, ovaries, tubes, uh, pelvic sidewalls, uterosacral ligaments, bladder. And um, when that happens, it causes sort of the myriad and host of symptoms that, that we associate with endometriosis. I think I think the definition becomes so important when you're talking about endometriosis because there is this idea that uh, endometriosis is 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 simply rogue endometrium um, that goes back to Samson's theory from I think 1928 I want to say 27 when he was president of the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons and he posited that endometriosis was simply refluxed endometrium that occurred during menstrual cycle. Uh, and then for some reason, the body didn't take care of it and it stuck around. And that's been the prevailing theory for, you know, 80 years until really until David Redwine came along and, and really changed that definition. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunately because a lot of OBs are still using that old definition of endometriosis, therefore the treatment of endometriosis becomes how you would treat simply, you know, a heavy period or something like that, which is either put a patient on hormones, suppress menstruation, or do a hysterectomy. Great point to move to the next part. Let's talk about common symptoms first. What are some of the most yeah. common symptoms of endometriosis that you see? The most common symptom of endometriosis, of course, is pain. And whether that's cyclical, that's typically how it starts, a sort of a cyclical pelvic pain. We do associate it with menses, especially in younger women. Um, is, But there's more than just pain. And I think that's really the, the, the critical thing is that you know, some patients don't have pain. For some patients, their symptoms of, of uh, endometriosis are just simply infertility. Um, they can have bladder pain. They can have pain with uh, bowel movements. Um, I think the most often overlooked symptom 
in, especially in our younger uh, female population, is the gastrointestinal symptoms. In younger patients in that teenage population, I would say that that um, the gastrointestinal symptoms, bloating, nausea, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, those are probably the most common symptoms of endometriosis. And you wouldn't believe I've lost count of the number of patients I've seen in the 15 to 20 year age range who've had endoscopies and colonoscopies and told they had IBS or told they had early Crohn's or told they had, you know, early ulcerative colitis that just hasn't really manifested yet. If you have a, a 15 or 16 year old who has gastrointestinal symptoms, that is endometriosis until proven otherwise. You don't send a patient to a GI in that you know, in that age range, you assume it's endometriosis and go from there. I have goosebumps. I see so many young female patients in my practice. And I remember being that patient and having no idea where to go or what to do with mm -hmm. those symptoms. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I might jump ahead. Just one little piece. Sure. How old do you have to be to get diagnosed with endometriosis? How early can you get diagnosed? Ooh, um, I mean, really, there's no there's no age range. We, uh, I mean, well, we see endometriosis. I, I We've seen it in patients who have not yet menstruated. And, and typically where you're going to see it is first when patients first start breast development, uh, even before they have their first menstrual cycle. Because when that breast development starts, that's when the estrogens first start surging. Now, endometriosis, thanks to the work of, of David Redwine, most likely we're born with it. I mean, uh, David did fetal autopsy studies that, that demonstrated the presence of endometrial-like tissue, even you know in utero. And then I think it's during that initial hormone surge that occurs with breast development where the endometriosis just kind of kind of takes off. So we have seen it in in patients who've you know not yet menstruated. Um, I did a discoid bowel resection on a 14 year old once. So this idea that you can't have endometriosis at a certain age or you're too young to have it. I think furthermore, the important thing to understand too is that menopause does not make endometriosis go away. There's this idea that you know, if you if you put a patient in the menopause, whether that's surgically with removing the ovaries, and we'll talk about that because it's absolutely barbaric. Talk about that. Um, if you put a patient in the menopause uh, hormonally with the use of Lupron or Oralissa or medications that basically downregulate um, the gonadotropin releasing hormone to shut down the ovaries, uh, or a patient goes through natural menopause, um, it, it, it's not going to stop endometriosis. And I, and I do see a lot of actually older patients who've been told, you know, they're in their mid fifties, well, you've already had a hysterectomy, you've had your ovaries out, you can't possibly have endometriosis anymore. I've removed, I actually posted in Nancy's note probably about six months ago, a pathology report from a 73 year old patient who had active endometriosis lesions. So the age range is from, you know, eight, nine years old up until death, essentially. So I appreciate that conversation so much. And like you said, we're going to dive into that later. Yeah. Okay. What are unthought of symptoms? Like symptoms that no one would even think that this is endometriosis. I mean, I've been doing this long enough now to realize that there are symptoms that patients may describe that you, that I even think to myself, well, that, that, couldn't possibly be endometriosis, but it is. 
Um, the, the most, the patient that I'm thinking of recently, um, about six months ago, had a known history of endometriosis. And in addition to sort of the chronic pelvic pain and the, the gastrointestinal symptoms, painful urination, she actually had a lot of issues with shortness of breath, breathing difficulties. She was sent to a pulmonologist. Nobody could explain why her, her oxygen sat, she was satting like 84% on room air. Um, she had this extensive pulmonology workup, including, uh, you know, bronchoscopy, uh, so much imaging. It was ridiculous. Nothing showed any nodules in the, the lungs, anything like that. No explanation for why she just couldn't breathe. And I did an excision surgery on her. And of course, I'm thinking, you know, diaphragmatic endometriosis, thoracic endo. Um, she didn't have any diaphragmatic endometriosis at all. And I did her excision surgery. I remember coming out and talking to the family and saying, hey, you know, I didn't find any any diaphragmatic endo, so I, I don't know if this is going to fix anything. I'm not kidding you. Within two, three weeks of surgery, she was back to 96, 98% room air um, just from an excision surgery. And you look at something like that, and I say, I have no rational explanation for why that happened. I'll take credit for it. But I, you know, I, I don't have an explanation other than the fact that if you boil endometriosis down to what it is at its essence, it is very highly inflammatory tissue. And that inflammation, that inflammatory tissue creates a cascade effect through the body where patients can have increased migraines, they can have TMJ, they can have fibromyalgia, they can have back pain, they can have sciatic pain, they can have sort of a myriad of other symptoms that you might think, well, that, you know, I'm not sure that's directly related to, because I think you, you sort of tend to think, well, the endometriosis is only going to cause effects where that lesion is. But the reality is because it is so highly inflammatory, it does create kind of this, this downstream cascade effect of, of symptoms. So, you know, virtually anything can be associated with endometriosis. I've had patients with you know, knee pain, they got better after an excision surgery, uh, patients with hip pain, patients with, uh, I mean, you name it, and and they've improved. And, and the only explanation that I have is that it's removing as much of that inflammation as possible so that the rest of the body can heal. That is amazing. Now, one might be thinking, well, what stage or level, we could talk about staging, like, did that yeah. person or do these people have, can it be like, silent stage one or two and be that bad or is it like flaring four <laughs> well and it, i'll be honest staging to me is meaningless um yeah. I, I think that staging is is um i mean I, the, the classification for staging came about from the asrm american society of reproductive medicine i, I think it was like in the 70s i want to say like 78 or something like that my date's probably wrong um, but it's been around a long time and and the i you know staging was really only created so that researchers could communicate with each other in their papers, you know, and so they could sort of, they could sort of stratify patients into different categories based on the staging of endometriosis they had. But the reality is that the staging has no bearing on um, symptoms. And, and you mentioned silent endometriosis and, and to us, silent endometriosis really is sort of what we call endometriosis, where patients don't have pain, they really just sort of have the infertility aspect of it. But I and I but I've seen patients with 
two or three solitary little lesions who've had debilitating pain, the point they can't get out of bed, their their family's falling apart, they're losing jobs. And then I've had patients who've had, you know, raging stage four, where it looks like a bomb went off in their pelvis. And really their only symptom was infertility. They had no pain associated with it at all. And so, you know, staging has, again, no impact on level of pain. Uh, it really has no impact on fertility. And that's another important thing to keep in mind that patients with stage one can have infertility problems just like a stage four patient has. So there's really no, um, there's really no difference. And I, and I, you know, when patients come out of surgery, they're always really interested in, well, what, what stage was I What you know, cause they, I think they want this, they, they want to all be stage four. All my patients want to be stage four. They want me they want to come out of surgery and have had, they want to set the record for the longest surgery I've ever done for the hardest surgery I've ever done. Cause I think they, they want to have a, a justification for, you know, their pain, what they've been experiencing over the last 10, 12, 15, 20 years. They want a justification to themselves. They want a justification to their family members. They want a justification to the OB-GYNs that have maybe dismissed them over the years. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes they'll come out or I'll come out and talk to families and they're, they're kind of disappointed. They're like, well, you were only in there for like 45 minutes. And it's like, well, you know, th that's all there was. I can't, I can't make it up. But I always remind patients and their families that any amount of endometriosis will cause any amount of pain. So staging, again, there was an effort within the last couple of years by Maurizio Abrao, who's a really brilliant endometriosis surgeon from Brazil uh, to sort of um, update the staging system. Um, but again, it, it still is, I won't say meaningless. I won't say arbitrary, but it's kind of, it, 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 you know, in my world, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, the staging system. So. I think so many patients need to hear what you just said too, because I think like you said, the stage game is because they've been disregarded. They've been gaslit. They've just had right. so much come at them for so long that they do want to walk out with just this really big explanation. But I think right. you said it best. Right. Any endo is bad and can cause right. a myriad right. of things for different people. So thank sure. you for that. Yeah. Okay. So how is the diagnosis made? Does it have to be surgery? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> I... I'm a surgeon, obviously. Um, so, you know, surgery is in my wheelhouse. I feel very strongly that you can make a diagnosis without, um, you know, without surgery, um, just based purely on symptoms. I, I've done between fellowship and the last eight years of, of private practice, I I've done around 3000 endometriosis surgeries. Um, and I can tell you, I've been tricked I can count on probably one hand the number of times I've been tricked where I've not found anything in there that might explain their pain. And when you're talking about chronic pelvic pain, though, you have to understand too, is that it's not just endometriosis where there's endometriosis, there's typically adenomyosis and we can get into that. Um, there's typically interstitial cystitis, there's typically pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and so, you know, endometriosis rarely exists in this, in this vacuum. And so, you know, but you can usually make, you can reliably make a diagnosis with, with symptoms. I know I get 99% of what I need to know from the patient history. They tell me 
that they have endometriosis. And then they're sort of shocked at the end of the, of the, the consult when I say, well, you, you absolutely have endometriosis. I'm like, well, I've been complaining of these symptoms to everybody for the last 10 years. Why are you so sure? And they almost like, it's almost like they're gaslighting themselves a little bit. It's like, well, I've been complaining of this for 10 years. Why are you so certain that I have endometriosis? But everybody else told me I didn't have endometriosis. Now there are, there is a growing movement and this is where it gets very, a little bit controversial. There is a growing movement of uh, clinicians out there who feel that they can diagnose endometriosis um, radiologically through ultrasound. Um, and they're, they've got their, their little ultrasound and their magic wand and they, they put it on every patient and they'll say, yep, that's endometriosis there. The danger in that is that a lot of times patients will be told, well, you don't have endometriosis based on what I've just seen on my ultrasound, even though their symptoms are screaming endometriosis. Um, and that, I think there's a danger in that more recently, there's been a big push and I don't know if this is you know, sort of big pharma driven, there's been a push to make the diagnosis via medicine. The idea being that if a patient comes to you and they're, they're, they're complaining of, you know, all these symptoms that we just talked about, that you put them on medicine first. And if they respond to it, their symptoms improve, then they have endometriosis. If they don't, then it must be something else. And that is so dangerous to me because all of us who do endometriosis for a living have seen a million patients who don't respond to medication. And, you know, thanks to a lot of some of the, you know, the work of Dave Redwine and, and others, um, you can tell I like David, he's kind of a hero of mine. Um, <laughs> the, we know that endometriosis produces its own estrogen supply. It, it aromatizes its own, it's very hormonally active. It aroma, it's almost like a cancer and that it, it sort of feeds itself. And so when you put patients on medications like Lupron or Orlis or birth control, and, and by the way, you know, Lupron has not been shown to be any more effective than, than regular old birth control. It costs a lot more. Um, but you know, when you put patients on those medications, what you're attempting to do is, is control symptoms. You're not stopping the progression of the disease. And a lot of patients just don't respond to those meds. And so if you're, if you're using either imaging solely or medication solely to make a diagnosis, you're missing a lot of endometriosis. The patient will tell you if they have endometriosis. You just have to listen to them. They'll come into your office and they'll tell you that they have endometriosis if you know the right questions to ask. And, and, that's, and that's not something you get from doing a fellowship or med school or residency. It's from spending time doing nothing but talking to endometriosis patients. You know, that's where that comes in. But a patient you know, they'll tell you, I, I've, like I said, I mean, in 3000 endo surgeries, I I've not seen endo and in, in only, you know, a small handful of patients. So it, you know, I don't take them to the OR unless I'm pretty certain they have it. So to make the official diagnosis though, you do, you know, you do, you do need to do surgery. And a lot of OB-GYNs don't do excision surgery and they'll just ablate the lesions. When you ablate the lesions, you can't, you can't prove endo or not because 
you you do need the, the pathologic side you need to send it to pathology and and have it be identified by a pathologist and said yes this is 100 percent endometriosis so so yes and no you know to go back to my to my original point yes and no is that you can pretty reliably make the diagnosis through history but to a hundred percent certain you 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 do need to make it surgically I tell my patients within the first 10 to 15 minutes of talking to them, I can tell them if they have it or not, and then ship them straight to you for, <laughs> for the well, treatment. Let's yeah. roll into treatment. Yeah. How do we treat endo? I, we talked so, about it here a little bit, but what? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. I, I think that, you know, if you've got a, a young, a young patient, um, you know, 12, 13, 14, who's, who's really kind of early in the process. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with trying to suppress symptoms via hormonal manipulation. I people call it hormonal management. I call it hormonal manipulation. Um, but again, you know, the, the danger is that you are not stopping the progression of the disease. And when 50% of patients will go on to have infertility as a result of their endometriosis, it's a hell of a gamble to take with someone's fertility. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, this idea that, you know, I'm just going to put you on hormonal suppression from the time you're 15 to the time you're 25. And then I'm going to take you off the birth control. You're going to magically get pregnant and then you're going to pop out a couple kids and then we'll put you either back on the hormonal suppression or we'll take your uterus out. I mean, that's really like the timeline of endometriosis treatment in this country, probably worldwide. Um, but the reality, you know, is I'm not, I'm not going to put a patient's fertility down to a coin flip. And, you know, I often get accused of being overly aggressive about surgery. Uh, you know, well, yeah, if you go see Duke, you're going to end up with a surgery. Well, yeah, maybe, but you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want patients to go five, 10 years, 12 years with his endometriosis raging inside them. And just and just suppressing it hormonally, because, again, I'm not going to put a patient's fertility down to a coin flip. Um, so, again, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything, like I said, inherently wrong with trying some suppression. Um, you know, maybe the timing is not right for a patient to have surgery. Uh, they're 16 and they're in all the sports or they're going off to college next year or they're getting married in three months and, or they just change jobs and they don't maybe have great insurance, right? I mean, there's, there's a ton of reasons why you can attempt to, to hormonally manipulate a patient, but the reality is eventually they're going to need excision surgery. Um, I do think that, you know, the, the question always comes in, well, can you treat it with, with other ways? You know, can you treat it through diet? Can you treat it through acupuncture? Can you, can you treat it through physical therapy alone? I think all of those things can be incredibly helpful. You know, I, I couldn't do what I do without my pelvic floor physical therapist. I mean, they're really that important to the treatment plan, but the endometriosis itself is not going to go away um, with physical therapy alone. It's not going to go away with diet alone. There's not. There's never been a single diet that's been shown consistently to treat endometriosis. Can it help? Absolutely. Can it help? You know, I mean, anything that can decrease inflammation in the body, whether that's diet, acupuncture, probiotics, all of those things can be great. But again, 
they're not actually treating the disease. They're sort of keeping it at bay for a while. Same thing with birth control. You know, I sort of throw birth control into that category and that's not to poo poo, you know, the dietary changes and, and, and those things. Um, and there, you know, if, I don't know if you've ever seen Shannon Cohn's great documentary end of what, but she spends a lot of time talking about diet and, you know, sort of toxins in, foods we eat and and shampoos and conditioners and body washes and and plastic you know we're drinking out of plastic containers and eating off of you know plastic utensils and you know there's so many things that we're putting in our body Um, if you look at sort of the incidence of diagnosis of endometriosis you know things like endometriosis and thyroid disease and autism and all of these rates have just skyrocketed, you know, in the last 30, 40 years. Is that because we're getting better at diagnosing it and more diagnoses are being made? Or is there truly a link with some of the things that we're putting in our bodies? I don't know. And that's a huge, you know, a huge area of research uh, that I think will be coming in the future. But all of these autoimmune conditions have just blown up in the last 30 years, you know? And so I do think there's, there's something to be said for, you know, what we're putting in our bodies and and the way we eat and, the, and what we drink. Um, again, though, are you, are you treating the disease? You know, are you going to make the disease go away solely with, with those things? Probably not, you know, will you feel better? Absolutely. You know, and, and I do, I do have patients who do acupuncture and see dietitians and, and virtually every single one of my patients goes to a physical therapist. The physical therapists I said are invaluable. Um, but it, but it, uh, you know, the closest thing we have to an actual cure, and I use that in quotations because we do call into the incurable disease. I can't cure it. Uh, nobody can cure it. Um, is you know the closest thing we have to a cure is excision surgery. That's wonderful. Um, let's talk about infertility and okay. endometriosis. I have a theory. This is just me. What I've seen in myself. 90, 95% random number thrown at you there of unexplained infertility is endometriosis. I do think there's something to be said. I do. I do think that there, I do think that there's, I think that every patient with unexplained fertility should be scoped by a specialist. I've said that for years. And, and, you know, we go back and forth with the reproductive endocrinologist because they're approaching it from a perspective of, you know, so what if the patient has endometriosis, I can overcome that endometriosis with any amount of hormone. I can still prime those ovaries. I can still force ovulation. I can still do an egg retrieval. I can force the pregnancy with progesterone. So, you know, we do go back and forth. And, and in a world of infertility, where the infertility specialists, you know, they publish their numbers, they live and die by their numbers. If if if, if you go to an infertility specialist and they have a 40% pregnancy rate, you're going to find the infertility specialist who has an 85 or 90%. Fertility. And those numbers are, are freely available. And, you know, I think it would behoove the the fertility specialist to really consider endometriosis in the unexplained infertility population um, and send them to a specialist because it's going to improve their numbers. We know, I mean, the data is very clear that excision surgery, I mean, there's been meta-analyses on it, that excision surgery, removal of endometriosis improves, uh, you know, oocyte retrieval rate, it improves implantation rate, it improves live birth rate. So in a world, you know, again, that kind of lives and dies by their numbers, I think it would improve outcomes if if every patient with an unexplained fertility saw fertility or saw, excuse me, an endometriosis specialist, but really sees like a true endometriosis specialist, not 
you know, friendly neighborhood Obigayan who delivered them and delivered their mom and delivered their cousins. And, you know, someone who truly knows how to look for endometriosis in all of its kind of nuanced forms. So I a hundred percent agree. I, that it, I look back at my own story and I'm just like, this was never even an option for me. I didn't even know I switched clinics and they're like, you have endometriosis, but like you said, we're going to override it. Depolupron. Right. Which puts you in menopause. I mean, there are there are protocols in the infertility world that do that do use Lupron, and and what they're using Lupron for is you know maybe not necessarily to downregulate disease. What they're trying to use Lupron, or what they should really be using Lupron for in those protocols, is to try to take over your cycle. They're using it to basically shut everything down so that they can then add those hormones back in and and basically get your cycle on how they need it in order to do an egg retrieval or implantation or whatever it may be. So there are, there are certainly protocols uh, and, and they're well studied. It's not just, you know, somebody's opinion. It's these are the infertility world uh, probably has, you know, more data behind it than, than just about any subspecialty um, in the ob world. I mean, maybe, maybe Dubai oncology, you know, has a ton also, but the, the reproductive world is so, um, robust with their with their research uh, because they they have to be they have to they have to improve those outcomes and they have you know they live and die by those outcomes and so you just have this this massive 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 amount of data behind what they're doing um and i'm not a reproductive endocrinologist by any stretch of the means but you know i do, i do think there are potentially times and and places for lupron um but i don't agree that it should be the go-to treatment option for endometriosis I agree. What do you think is a good, if you can even give us this, let, let's say someone wants to hit pause on their infertility treatments, whatever, wherever they're at with that and do an excision procedure, exploratory lab. What does it yeah. look like before they can dive back in, whether it's on their own or treatment? Well, we know, so the, the data is fairly clear um, that, you know, the, the window of, of fertility is probably highest that first three to nine months after surgery, excision surgery. Um, and if you are going to go the IVF route uh, or the assisted reproductive technology ART route, um, then the data would indicate that it's probably the first six to 25 months after um, after surgery. And, and, you know, why there's that discrepancy between three and nine months and then six and 25 months, I, I think a, a lot of it probably has to do with some of the inflammatory effects that we see after endometriosis surgery. Cause even though endometriosis is a very inflammatory disease, when you excise it, that inflammation doesn't just turn off immediately. Um, and if you've got a very high level of inflammation present, that does not bode well for, you know, sperm or, or an egg trying to meet, um, and travel down the tube together, you know, um, we do see pretty, pretty good, uh, spontaneous fertility rates after excision surgery. I, um, had a patient, um, I mean, just as an example, who'd, who'd had a couple cycles of, of IVF out of central, uh, Oregon who came to me and she'd actually had excision surgery prior with, a a, a really, you know, great specialist, great surgeon, um, really knows what he's doing. Um, and did not get pregnant right away, but then underwent a couple of cycles, underwent two cycles of in vitro, uh, came to me, I operated on her. Um, and it was like this surgeon hadn't, it was like no surgeon had ever been in there. And I know this surgeon person, he's an, he's an excellent surgeon. I know he didn't, he didn't miss these lesions. They, they just, you know, I think that the IVF, the, the massive hormones that you're on sort of stimulated everything to come back. 
Um, but the, the, the cool thing with her is that, you know, she spontaneously conceived within six months, um, after having failed two cycles of, of IVF and, um, had another patient who I just recently operated on who I don't, she didn't do IVF, but she did a lot of IUIs and things like that. Um, had been trying for like seven years to get pregnant. Um, and we did a, my general surgery colleague and I did a big surgery on her. We ended up taking out about eight inches of her ileocecum. Um, and she, um, she spontaneously, I actually had to remove her left tube and ovary cause they were so diseased. So I just left her with the right tube and ovary and within two months she was spontaneously pregnant. So we, we do, and those are just two I can think about the top of my head. We do, we do see a huge improvement in fertility, um, especially spontaneous fertility, you know, the, the unassisted fertility, we do see a huge improvement in that with, with, uh, excision surgery alone. So amazing. Let's talk about it. What is excision surgery? How does it differ perhaps from ablation or what you would find? Sure. So excision surgery is a very highly specialized form of surgery um, wherein you're actually cutting the lesions out. You're actually removing the endometriotic tissue from the body. Ablation or fulguration is what the vast majority of OB-GYNs in America are taught. And that's what I was taught in residency. It's what everybody's taught in residency. And it's that's where you go in and you burn the lesions. The problem when you burn the lesions is that the recurrence rate of disease is probably around 80 to 100%. In addition to not only treating the endometriosis, you're probably making things worse in there because you're creating adhesions that weren't there. You're creating scar tissue. When you excise endometriosis and actually remove the lesions, you almost treat endometriosis like a cancer. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go in and just burn a cancer and say, well, it's kind of close to the bowel. I'll just leave it there. It's close to the bladder. I'll leave it there. You would, you know, you don't just burn a few spots and call it good. You, you, that would be, you know, malpractice. Um, but there seems to be this idea that you can do that with endometriosis. You know, well, I'll just go in and burn a few spots and, and whatever's too hard to get, I'll just leave it there. Um, excision surgery, you know, we're trained, we do two years of extra fellowship training where we're taught to remove endometriosis really no matter where it is. Um, if it's on, you know, bladder around ureters, uh, you know, we'll resect that. You do need to bring in other subspecialists when you've got, you know, deep, I just did a sigmoidectomy on Wednesday. You know, I had to have a, a surgery colleague come in and, and do that. That's not something I would do myself. Or if they have thoracic endo or, you know, deep diaphragmatic endo, you need a cardiothoracic surgeon to treat that. So it's not like we're treating all of the disease ourselves, but we're part of a multidisciplinary team that can get all the, you know, that can remove it all, um, you know, and so that, that I think is the big difference. And the, the issue is not, um, maybe so much with, you know, the, the OB-GYN's, you know, sort of lack of surgical training. It's more that this goes all the way to the top. I mean, this goes to ACOG, the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. That's our over, you know, that's our our overarching sort of uh, um, organization that gives us that gives the OB/GYN um, guideline, the OB/GYN population guidelines on how to do, you know, how to treat endometriosis. And the big issue, and I think why there's so much anger directed at ACOG from a patient and advocate standpoint is that ACOG still does not recognize the difference between a, a general OB-GYN with no additional fellowship training and a fellowship trained minimally invasive surgeon. The analogy that I always make is, you know, we've long, we've long known that 
GYN oncology is a separate field than regular OB-GYN. There's no OB-GYN in America who would say, you know, I think my patient has an ovarian cancer. I'm going to take that patient to surgery. I'm going to debulk that tumor. I'm going to do a pelvic and periaortic lymphadenectomy, remove all their lymph nodes to see for metastases. I'm then going to treat that patient with, you know, a combination of, of, you know, chemotherapy, possibly radiation. That would be malpractice. There's no OB-GYN in America who would feel comfortable to, I, you know, I, I worked with a lot of GYN oncologists in my fellowship. I'm not a GYN oncologist. I'm not a fellowship trained GYN oncologist. There's no, there's no place for me to trying to be treat or to attempt to try to treat a, a gynecologic cancer. But for some reason, because ACOG has not made the distinction, the Royal College of Obstetricians or Royal, yeah, Royal College of, of, of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in, in England has made that distinction. They have said, you know, if a patient has advanced endometriosis, they need to see a, a fellowship trained specialist who's part of a multidisciplinary team. ACOG has not yet done that. And so what we've done is we've taken an entire generation of OB-GYNs who probably spend 90% of their time in residency delivering babies because that's where they're needed, their cheap labor force for a busy labor ward, maybe 10% of their time doing, you know, hysterectomies and endometriosis surgeries and things like that. And we suddenly have like let them loose and they're out there with the idea, well, ACOG says that I can do this. ACOG says that you're not any better than me. Uh, we hear it all the time. There's no difference. You know, I can do everything that, that Dr. Duke and Dr. Young, my partner, who's also a fellowship trained, I can do everything that they can do. I, you know, there, I, I'm just as skilled. I can recognize disease. The reality is, is that they can't. The reality is that they, they can't recognize the disease. They cannot adequately treat it, but they're backed up by ACOG. They're backed up by the organization that says, you know, there really is no difference. And ablation surgery is probably just as good as excision surgery. And hormones are probably just as good as surgery. And we should put every patient on hormones. Um, and until that changes, you know, until until that changes from the top, nothing's going to change on the ground level. When I started my practice eight years ago, first of all, everybody thought it was nuts. They're like, you're going to move to Idaho and, and start like, uh, you know, an endometriosis specialty. Like, what are you what are you thinking? And, you know, when my first paycheck came back three hundred dollars, I had a lot of the same questions. Like, what am I what am I thinking? Uh, that was, you know, for the month, I made $300 my first month of practice. I thought, okay, I'm, I, this maybe isn't going to work. Um, but it just, it, it blew up. We have patients who fly from all over the country to see us. We must be doing something right. And word gets out, you know, when I, when I, but when I started here, as I said, I was out there and I was saying, we have to be doing excision surgery. And everybody thought I was nuts. All the OB-GYNs locally, Spokane, Coeur d'Alene, Moscow, uh, everywhere, we're still doing ablation surgery. Now, a bunch of them are doing excision surgery. And that to me is, I'm like, wait, well, did you guys, you guys all started doing ablation surgery, but now you're doing excision surgery because they know it's the right thing to do. They know that excision surgery is the right thing to do because, you know, we've been loud enough and yelled enough and patients have been loud enough and yelled enough and they're demanding excision surgery. And so now we have, that's kind of the dangerous, you know, the double-edged sword is now we have a, a bunch of OB-GYNs who are saying, well, I can do excision surgery. And they're putting on their website that they're specialists in excision surgery. And again, I mean, it's just, it's, it's super dangerous for, for patients because, um, you know, they're just, they're just not they just don't have that level of training to really be able to excise disease safely and, 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 and adequately. Um, 
do my partner and I have complications? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, another sort of criticism that gets thrown around. Well, Dr. Duke has all these complications or, you know, he had a bowel injury or he had a ureter injury. And yeah, I have had bowel injuries. I have had ureter injuries. None of us, none of us who've done excision surgery for as long as we have, 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 you know, never had a complication. Um, but it's because the nature of excision surgery is, is, it is a riskier surgery. We are operating around bowels. We're operating around ureters. We're operating around bladders. And so there is more potential for things to go wrong. It's easy to do an ablation surgery. Anybody can go in and burn a few spots of endo and call it a day. But if you go in and you spend four hours removing endo from bowel and diaphragm and bladder and around ureters, you know, you are running a higher risk. Um, but the outcomes for the patients are so much better um, that it's worth the risk. By the way, there is no difference in reimbursement for ablation or fulguration surgery and excision surgery. That is one of the things we are working on changing. And I think that's still one of the things, you know, why there is a lot of anger still directed at, at organizations like ACOG and um, is because, you know, they kind of, they kind of sold gynecologic reimbursement down the river to try to uh, gain access to higher obstetrical reimbursements. This was in the nineties and they have not made a distinction between fulguration surgery and excision surgery. So someone can go in and burn three spots of endo and they'll get paid the same as what I get paid to do a three or four hour surgery. And so this is why, you know, unfortunately, so many of the, of the top specialists have had to go out of network um, because if you're running a private practice with, you know, eight employees, you can't keep the lights on if you're spending all of your time doing, you know, six, seven, eight hour surgeries and making a couple hundred bucks in reimbursement, you know, the same as someone who just burns a few spots, you're not going to keep the lights on very long. And, and so that is, you know, another big area of concern. Now, hopefully some of that will be addressed with, um, there's been a big push by the AAGL, American Association of Gynecological Laparoscopists, to have fellowship trained minimally invasive GYN surgeons or MIGs be a separate specialty. We actually now have our own boards, uh, written boards, and eventually we'll have our own oral boards. And if we can make that distinction and actually have fellowship trained MIGS people be a separate board process like GYN oncology, like maternal fetal medicine, like reproductive endocrinology and fertility, like urogynecology, if we have a separate board certification process, then I think, you know, eventually we do are able to go back and, and, and negotiate for those higher reimbursements. Um, but until, I mean, the process has been slow, as you can imagine, because I think there has been some pushback from the big, the big dogs that, at ACOG to say, you know, well, you know, why should you guys get more money um, than what than what we get, you know, kind of thing. And and so it is a process that we are working to change, but it's, as you can imagine, it's it's quite slow and, um, you know, it, it, it it's just, but it, it is, it is changing. And I, and I think what's driving it is patients and advocates, people uh, like Shan Cohn, who made the documentary, people like Nancy Peterson of Nancy's Nook, uh, Susan Richards, um, Heather Guidon, um, you know, the real, the people who are in the trenches every day, those are the people who, along with patients who are working to make that change. And I, and I think it's coming because there is a lot of anger out there. There is, you know, and, and hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. Um, <laughs> and I think the day will come. I really do. I think the day will come when 
every patient is given access to a fellowship trained excision surgeon. They don't have to go through three or four or five fulguration surgeries. They don't have to be told that their only option is to get pregnant. Their only option is to get a hysterectomy. Their only option is to get their ovaries removed or their only option is to take Lupron. I really do think that day is coming and I can't wait for it to get here. Oh, that's so refreshing to hear. I cannot wait myself. This is so good. We're going to roll in. You just said it. Does a hysterectomy cure endometriosis? Oh, boy. Just stop it right there. Let's yeah. go there yeah. for a second. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a, this is a question, um, you know, that, that pops up all the time. Absolutely not. Um, and patients are being told that, though. That's that's the the danger. There's a, there's a cousin of endometriosis called adenomyosis, and adenomyosis is the presence of glandular endometrial tissue in, in the myometrium, which is the muscle layer of the uterus. You know, the uterus is a big muscle. It's what squeezes, it contracts when you're having contractions. Um, and so it's a big, it's a smooth muscle tissue. When the glandular endometrial, you know, tissue works its way out into the muscle layer of the uterus, that's adenomyosis. And that's where you get your heavy clotting periods, your severe cramping, your pain. So adenomyosis absolutely is treated with a hysterectomy. I mean, and if you're not ready for that, there are some other, you know, an IUD or things that you can try to hormonally suppress in that instance. Um, but endometriosis by definition is outside of the uterus. And I think, I think it's Jeff Arrington who I, um, he's was down at CEC in Atlanta. He's, uh, back in Utah now. Um, he and I trained at the same fellowship program in Tennessee. And he has a saying that, you know, dealing with endometriosis by performing a hysterectomy is like dealing with weeds in your lawn by burning your house down. I mean, it's just like, you're not going to, you're not going to affect, you're not going to affect the presence of endometriosis by doing a hysterectomy. And again, it goes back to that definition that we talked about at the very, very beginning of the, of the, of the chat was, you know, if we're still defining endometriosis as rogue endometrial tissue, and we don't make a distinction between endometrium, you know, healthy, normal endometrium and endometriosis, we're again, you know, using a his, that's how we're justifying. That's how the, the, the hysterectomy is used as a justification as for treatment of endometriosis. If endometriosis was truly just, you know, retrograde menstruation, then just do a tubal ligation. Wouldn't a tubal ligation, you know, do have the same effect? Um, now, I do think that a, a hysterectomy can be a very powerful tool and, you know, it's a good arrow to have in your quiver. But if you're friendly neighborhood OB-GYN who's been delivering babies for 45 years and, and your only hammer is a hysterectomy, everything starts looking like a nail. And, you know, th this idea that you know, you get a hysterectomy and you get a hysterectomy and you get, you know, it's like Oprah Winfrey, like you get a hysterectomy, you get a hysterectomy, you get a hysterectomy. Um, you know, we're not doing a service to patients um, by doing that. And, and in a lot of cases, we're robbing fertility. I mean, I, you wouldn't believe the number of patients I've seen who were told that their only option was a hysterectomy. And they're so desperate, so desperate to not be in pain anymore that they agree. They consent to it. These are 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds who are so desperate to be out of pain that they will do anything, including listening to bad information that is not based in fact, it is not based in reality, it is not based in even the universe of reality. And, and that, that's the most heartbreaking thing to see, you know, are, are those patients who are told the only, and they wanted kids so badly, they wanted kids so desperately, um, 
all their life. And, you know, we're told, well, you either have to choose between pain or a hysterectomy and they're going to choose a hysterectomy. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, it's devastating to see it's barbaric. It is. I've had a couple of those patients and it's one of the hardest things to yeah. see in practice. Okay. So we know that endometriosis is also a full body disease. What are some other complementary therapies or other providers? We've talked about physical therapy, nutrition, that type of thing, yeah. the support. I always tell my patients, create your own healthcare team. So if patients are looking to create their own healthcare team, what can that look like for endo? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm part of a multidisciplinary team. I'm very fortunate in that I do have, uh, you know, some surgeons who who work with us for our bowel resections. Um, been a little slower in getting some of the other, you know, some of the urologists and things involved, but um, it's you you do have to be part of a team, and and sometimes in in invariably that team includes physical therapists, but that team can also include nutritionists and. Um, you know, acupuncturists, and we frequently will use, we have a couple of really good trauma therapists um, locally who sort of specialize in sexual trauma and the way that it pertains to, to pelvic pain, because it's it, that, I mean, that's been well established that, that, you know, sexual trauma, physical trauma can manifest as, you know, as, as sort of pain, you know, later on. Um, the danger in that is, of course, telling patients that their pain must only be due to something like that. You know, I, I've seen, I saw a patient uh, just just two weeks ago in my office who um, had been seeing another OB-GYN and, and that OB-GYN had insisted that she must have been sexually assaulted and not remembered it. That that was the only explanation for pain was that, you know, you, well, you, must, have, you must have been assaulted or raped and, and just not, you know, you've suppressed the memory. You've, 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 you know, you, you, you're not remembering it, but that's, there's, there's no, there's no possible way that you weren't raped. And it's like, do you know what that does to a patient? Like, do you know what that does to their psyche to, to be told that, you know, they were raped and just didn't remember it, or they've suppressed the memory. And that's the only reason they're having pain because then you're taking a disease and selling them that it's in their head, you know? And I think that's kind of the, it's just, yeah. Wow. I mean, we, we hear it all. Wow. Oh, yeah. But the I do, but I you do, must hear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, I do, you know, I do think though that there, there has to be a multidisciplinary approach. And I, I always, you know, my partner and I, I think are, are humble enough in the sense to realize that we're surgeons and we can excise all the disease we want, but there are going to be still a cascade of effects. I always liken it to, you know, an atomic bomb going off in your body. And, and we, my partner and I, you know, clean up the damage, but there's still radiation everywhere, you know, and that that's going to be there for years and years and years and years. And so, you know, cleaning up, you know, the damage doesn't make the radiation go away, if you will. And so we as surgeons just have a very almost small part to play in this. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm probably more of an advocate than I am a surgeon sometimes because um, it's, uh, you know, I, we, again, we can't do what we do without the physical therapist, without the whole team. So, um, it, it, you know, we have a, a pretty small part to play and it. it's an important part. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, belittling what I do for a living, but um, but it is, you know, we, we do because it is a systemic uh, disease and it has systemic effects, 
you you have to take a, a systemic approach to it, certainly. So wonderful. So do patients need to be referred to you or can they self-refer? And what does that process? No, no, like? patients don't. Yeah, this idea that patients need uh to have a referral to CS, um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, maybe certain insurance plans or something might require a referral, but um, patients can can just as easily get that from their primary care doctor as they can, you know, because I think there's a there's a bit of a reluctance. I think um, a lot of patients like, you know, they don't want to hurt their OB-GYN's feelings. You know, they're like, well, he de he delivered me and he delivered my baby and I've known him. He's been doing my pap smears for 20 years and, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings. But I, I think if you, you know, if you really truly think you have endometriosis and you're not getting anywhere with it, you you should just go see a specialist. And you know, I, I also get the question a lot from patients is, well, do I need to have a, an official surgical diagnosis of endometriosis before I come see you? Actually, we'd prefer you not to. Um, I would prefer you don't have a surgery with someone who is not an endometriosis specialist, because we talked about this earlier, they're creating scar tissue, they're creating adhesions in there, they're creating um, you know, worsening inflammation, uh, by, by fulgurating it. And so when I go in and do an excision surgery, you know, half the time I'm just undoing the adhesions and the scar tissue that were created by a surgery that, that was not good. You know, I mean, it was a bad surgery, um, and it didn't do the patient a good, you know, nine times out of 10, the fulguration surgeries make patients pain worse, I think. Um, and so, no, my, you know, my partner and I would, we'd prefer you to, to have your first surgery be with a specialist, you know, whether it's us or someone, you know, whoever, but, but, um, I think that's where, where resources like Nancy's Nook, um, are so important because, you know, Nancy, Nancy has been a tireless advocate for endometriosis patients for God, 40 years now. And she's amazing. She never quits. I don't think she sleeps. She's, she's just amazing. Her goal is to get every patient in America to see a specialist, you know, and not have to deal with, um, surgery after surgery, after surgery, after surgery that, that, you know, doesn't work. Um, I saw a patient actually from North Dakota six months ago, who'd had, I think 14, 14 surgeries, including a hysterectomy, including her ovaries out, um, it's like every time they went in, they just kind of, they burned a few things, but then just kind of kept taking more things, you know, it was like, well, we'll take a tube out, then we'll take another tube out, then we'll take the uterus out, then we'll take an ovary, then we'll take another ovary. And it was just like, it was just surgery after surgery, after surgery, after surgery. And then it's like, you you know, your body's just so broken from that. And there's just, you know, it, it's like, and, and that, those are hard conversations to have with patients. Cause I tell them, you know, yeah, you can come out and see me. Um, am I going to be able to undo all of this? Probably not, you know, and that's hard. That's a hard, cause I think when they come to you as a, you know, I'm a nook doctor, um, for, for what that means, it's, uh, um, yeah, I think there's, you know, sort of a, an expectation that, that I can fix everything or the patient will never have pain again. if I do their surgery and, and, you know, unfortunately that's not the reality of endometriosis and, um, we're, we're a small community. We all, you know, we, we, we get together at meetings and we nerd out about endometriosis. And, you know, I know Nick Fogelson and, and Cindy Mossbrucker and, and, um, you know, Ken Sinervo, and we all get together and we all talk and, you know, unfortunately we, we have, we've all had patients who we, we can do surgery on and, and 
they'll maybe go see someone else and they have just as much disease as the first time we operated on them. And um, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to sort of manage expectations sometimes to say, okay, you know, you'll, you'll never have pain again, or you'll never, and that's unfortunately not the, you know, not the reality of the disease. Um, and that's not, you know, these, these are all the, the names I just mentioned. These are like some of the top endo specialists, you know, Andre Vidali in, in New Jersey and, um, uh, you know, Iris Orbach down in LA. And I mean, these are like top, top surgeons and, and, you know, they, they the reality is that we've all operated on each other's patients and we've all found disease. Um, and, and it's, it's tough. And that's why I think we call it, you know, we call it the incurable disease. Um, because they're just, you know, you can have God himself operate on you and there's still a 10 to 20% chance that disease is probably going to come back, you know, at some point. Um, I think earlier in your career, when you're first starting out, I think the recurrence rate is higher. If you're, you know, when you're first starting out, I think there are surgeries that I look back on and, you know, when I was first starting out, I think, you know, I didn't have the skill set yet to, to really you know, get everything out that I needed to do. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it is a constant, uh, evolving, uh, process. It's a constant, uh, teaching process of yourself. It's just, a, it's a, you know, you're always evolving as a surgeon. Um, you're always evolving as a person, uh, you're always evolving as a clinician. Um, it's this constant state of, of, you know, how can I make myself better for my patients? Um, and we're not perfect. And, and I don't, you know, I, 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 I never give patients the sense that excision surgery is the end all be all, um, that you will, I try really hard to sort of manage those expectations, you know, that there is a chance that this will come back. Uh, there's a chance that we won't fix your pain. There's a chance that, you know, I've had a couple of patients that probably made their pain worse, you know, to be honest. And that that's devastating, you know, that's heartbreaking and it's a real shot to your ego for sure. But, um, it isn't perfect, uh, but the whole world of endometriosis is so imperfect that this is probably as close to perfection as we get. Um, will there someday be a magical, uh, you know, cure for endometriosis? I hope so. I really do. I hope there will be a, you know, a, a medication like a chemotherapy that could just target specifically endometriosis tissue without causing damage to uterus and ovaries and tubes and, um, but we're nowhere close, you know, we're nowhere close to that right now. Um, unfortunately, you know, it, it probably won't be in my lifetime. So I really appreciate that part of the conversation and to have a nook badge is huge. So for those that don't know, I'm going to link Nancy's <laughs> nook. Yeah. Nancy, Nancy's, a, <laughs> Nancy's a, a hoot. I first bumped into Nancy probably about six years ago. And like I said, she's, she's whip smart. She remembers every single person and she, sought me out, um, at one of the meetings and said, Hey, we've been getting really good feedback on you. Um, are you interested in sort of joining, you know, the nook? And I really had no idea. I actually didn't know what the nook was, um, at the time. Um, and, you know, I sort of said, well, you know, sure. Let me, let me reach out, um, to, to Scott Fur, who trained me in my fellowship. As I said, with Scott, we all, uh, we all train under CY Lou, it was Jeff Arrington, Shanti Moling, who's out at, uh, she works with Nick Fogelson in, in Portland. We all train in the same fellowship program. Um, it was very, very endo heavy. Um, and actually it was, it was, I said, well, sure. Let me, let me reach out to Scott for who trained me and see what this Nancy's Nook thing is all about. And so I contacted Scott and he's like, you're not ready. He said that to me. He said, you're not ready for it. 
you don't have you don't have a skill set yet. You've got the foundations of a skill set, but you don't have it yet. You're not ready. And I went, well, you know, first of all, I was like, well, screw you, Scott. Like, you trained me. You trained me. I should be good enough. What does that say about you? You know, I was like, I was actually like really kind of hurt by it initially. And, you know, then I swallowed my my pride a little bit and swallowed my ego and thought, you know, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm not ready for this yet. You know, maybe this is something that that is, you know, not I'm, I'm just not ready for. It. And so probably another six months to a year went by. Um, where I was continuing to just do surgery after surgery, after surgery, after surgery. And I was doing things that I thought were more, you know, more advanced than what I had been doing on my own when I first started out, whether I was scared, whether I was, you know, worried about hitting a bowel and not having the backup for my general surgeons or hitting a ureter. And so, you know, we talked, when I talked early, when I said earlier that, you know, the recurrence rates of disease are probably higher when you're first starting out your career. I think it is because of that. And and Scott was right. I was not ready for Nook. But after about a year of her continuing to get more feedback and I was doing more and more cases, I did. I reached back out to her and I said, OK, I think I'm I think I'm ready for this now because it has to be about the patient. You know, you can't you can't have a bunch of surgeons on there who are on Nancy's Nook because they're nice or because they're friendly or they believed you and they, you know, they were the first doctor to believe that your pain was real. You have to have surgeons on there because they know what they're doing. And, you know, it, it was about a year before I got back out and reached out to Nancy and she was like, okay, like if you think you're ready and Scott thinks you're ready, who trained you, we'll put you on. And I got on Nancy's Nook and I'm not kidding. Within three months, my surgical volume had tripled. And I was having patients come from Utah and Montana and Wyoming and um, everywhere. I mean, I've now operated on patients from 28 of the 50 states. Uh, I've had patients come down from Alaska. We've had them from Canada. We've had them, you know, so it it patients will travel if you're a Nook doctor, um, but it does it does take some time to get there. And I and you don't, you know, even coming out of fellowship, are you a better surgeon than than the vast majority of OB-GYNs in this, in this country, absolutely 100% you are. Are you nook worthy yet? Probably not. And I think it does take a few more years of developing that skill set. Um, but also kind of swallowing your ego and saying, you know, ultimately this is about the patient. The patients have been through enough runaround with their family practice doctors and their OB-GYNs and their you know, they, they've been through so much of this. The last thing they need is to come to a surgeon who thinks they're really awesome at it. And because they're on the nook and they don't get the outcome that they want. And sometimes, as I said earlier, those outcomes sometimes are, you know, they're not achievable, but, um, you know, being on nook is, is, you know, kind of initially, like I said, about, you know, making sure that it's, that you are really ready because, we get some tough, 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 tough cases. You know, we get the worst of the worst of the worst usually. And there are cases that have been beyond me still. I had a case just recently where um, I knew that it needed, you know, it it needed more than what I could do. It, it was going to need a colorectal surgeon and a urologist. And unfortunately, it was probably going to have to be done open. I, it was just, I, I put a scope in her and I spent two hours digging around in concrete before I found what I think was a fallopian tube. It took me two hours to find a fallopian tube in a pelvis. <laughs> this is, I, I can't, I can't do that. You know, it was just, I, and I, again, I swallowed my pride and I said, I got to get this patient somewhere else. And so I sent her over to Seattle. Um, but that was the right thing to do for her, you know, but 
Um, no, I think Nancy's Nook is really important. I think I think if anything, Nancy's Nook is great because of the um, the advocacy work they do, um, really getting patients to go in the right direction. You know, to 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 just stop wasting their time and and really see a specialist. That's I think where Nancy's Nook is so huge. I think that's a great spot to just say again, you do not need a referral. Do not you need a referral. Do not need a referral. No. I don't think, right. I think patients need to realize that not one person holds all the answers, especially no. for their symptoms and it, diseases. And, you know, my my favorite ob locally are the ones who send me patients and not just because they're sending me patients. And that sounds, you know, it's not because it's like a money thing or a referral thing. It's because they say, you know what, this patient is beyond my skill set and they need a specialist like Dr. Duke or Dr. Young. And and that's incredibly hard, I think, for a lot of OB-GYNs, especially when you are being backed up by ACOG who says, no, you can do everything they can do. You, you're special. You can do it. Um, and, you know, the, the OB-GYNs that I respect the most in this world are the ones who say, you know what, I can't do that. Just like I said, I can't do those surgeries. I got to send you, I sent one to, to Fogelson out in Portland. I sent one to uh, Mossbrucker. Um, in Seattle. And I just said, I can't, this is beyond me. I can't do, but that's the right thing to do is to say, this is beyond me. I can't do this. I'm going to cause more harm than good in there. I got to send this to someone who has more experience than I do. Um, and those are, those are the best, you know, those are the best ob guys. The worst, the worst ob guys are the ones who say, I won't see you anymore once you've had surgery with someone else. And unfortunately we run into that all the time. It's, you know, patients will come up, they'll have surgery with me from Utah or Montana or South Dakota, and we'll send the patients back with the expectation like, hey, we've done the surgery. Can you kind of help us with, you know, some of the post-op stuff? Like I had a patient who I did a hysterectomy on and she was like four weeks out and had a cuff bleed, uh, vaginal cuff bleed, and her ob wouldn't see her, refused to see her in the office, said, nope, I won't see you anymore. You had surgery with someone else. I, I won't, I won't be your ob anymore. And it's like... Really? To that, like, I would say you do not want that to be your healthcare provider ever. Yeah. Run, 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 run away yeah. from that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah, I think, but as I think as, as fellowship programs become more commonplace at, at academic centers, you know, when I, when I went through the fellowship cycle, there were like, I think there was something like 22 or 24 fellowships. And when my partner who just went through it, maybe four years after I did, I think there was something like 48. So just in that initial time, it had, it had, you know, nearly doubled or it had doubled in, in the number of uh, fellowship programs that were. And I think as more residents get exposed to those fellowship programs, you know, as, cause the residents, like when I was in fellowship, the residents would scrub in those cases with, they wouldn't be doing a whole lot, but they'd be scrubbing in and they would see those really advanced endometriosis cases. And they would see what, Scott Fur was able to do what CY Lou was able to do what what my you know my co-fellow Miriam and I were able to do and I think that for a lot of them that light did click you know I was like oh that's more advanced than anything I would want to do or could do you know and so I think as as the fellowships become more commonplace and I and I think as we move towards having our own completely separate board certification I, I do think that will will continue to change but it's a slow road for sure. So, well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Yeah. Duke, for being on Hopeful Hands. You're I'm going to have the link in the show notes. So they can run and book yeah. a consultation with you and do yeah. it on their own with no referrals needed if they have any thoughts of endometriosis. <laughs>
Perfect. Yeah, we're happy to see everyone. My partner, uh, Dr. Young, is also excellent, excellent fellowship trained uh, endosurgeon. Um, so yeah, we're happy to see anybody and everybody. So yeah, thank you so much for all the all work right. that you do. Oh, you're welcome. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Highway to Health Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Quinby, provides guidance, quality resources, and inspiration for anyone seeking wellness in mind, body, and spirit. There's an episode that you should check out called The Value of Our Emotions, where Jeremy helps listeners understand the role emotions serve and what we can learn about our present state by staying attuned to them. Check out Highway to Health podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.